Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello and welcome to The Sidebar, presented by True Crime Daily, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at JoshuaRitterESQ or at JoshuaRitter.com. We are recording this on Thursday, October 26, 2023. We have a special episode for you this week. We're going to try something a little bit different um, and something I'm actually excited about. On February 14th, 2018, Nicholas Cruz committed one of the deadliest school shootings in history. In October of 2022, Cruz was spared the death penalty in a verdict that surprised many. However, earlier this year, Scott Peterson, a former Broward County deputy, faced criminal charges for his response to the deadly Parkland shooting. This case ignited furious debate amongst those who wanted to see more done to stop needless deaths and amongst those who saw Peterson's prosecution as a misguided prosecutorial overreach. Today, we are very excited to be joined by Mark Iglarsh. Mark is a seasoned defense attorney and legal commentator But today, Mark joins us to share his experience in defending Scott Peterson in this high-profile trial, eventually securing an acquittal for his client on all charges. Mark, welcome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, We're excited because it's, it's rare that we have the opportunity to go into a case, one case, more in depth, um, but with the attorney who was so integral to it, who, who defended, uh, the defendant in this case and um, knows more about it than probably anyone else, we thought it would be a good opportunity to get a little bit more into the weeds on this case in particular because it's it's interesting for what it involved, but it's also interesting from a legal perspective. So let's jump right in. First of all, in Parkland, Florida, Scott Peterson, a Broward County Sheriff's deputy, worked as a school resource officer at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. He was one of the first responders on February 14th, 2018, when Nicholas Cruz executed his deadly attack that took the lives of 17 students and faculty. Mark, you you live and work in Florida, not far from where this took place, right? Can you tell us a little bit, what, what was the climate like following the shooting? We were all devastated. Understand, I didn't know who Scott Peterson was. I was just a father with his three children and wife living probably a half an hour away from this campus. 
We all knew kids who were affected, families who were suffering. And so instead of our usual gratefuls, where we go around the table each night and say what we're grateful for, we all had a lot to say about the shooting. And I wanted each of my kids to get off their chest what, you know, what they felt, how unsafe they felt in their own school. And from this discussion came a decision by my extraordinary wife of 23 years, who's so empathic, she suggested that each of us handwrite a letter to each of the victim's families. And including in the letter, we included a little ceramic smiley face, a seed of happiness, they're called. And just to sh- a small token to show that we're with you, we love you, and we're, we're, you know, we're so sorry about what you're going through. You know, to this day, I still get very choked up because those families are living my nightmare. So when Scott Peterson contacted me at some point later to consider meeting with him, candidly, I wasn't interested. I was like, what's the point? I'm not going to ultimately represent this guy. I had already represented one of the victims, uh, Alea Eastman, who courageously um, helped others in her class survive the shooting. She used one of her classmates as a shield. He had already been killed. She felt so guilty that that for, for using his body that she held up to absorb some of the bullets. We went on the Today Show with Megan Kelly um, and we talked about her experience. So I was very aligned with all the victims in this case. I felt from what the media told us that he was a coward, that he just cowarded behind some concrete pillar instead of going in there knowing the kids were being killed. That's what we were sold. So right. I at first didn't even want to meet with him, Josh. Yeah. Wow. That's 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 the one of the first things I want to get into. Um you know when these tragedies strike, um there was an a, another shooting last night that we heard about a, a mm-hmm. massacre taking place in Maine. Of course it affects all of us and we're all um bothered and can imagine what it's like uh but to actually be in that community uh to have it strike so close to home i we we appreciate you giving us uh kind of your thoughts and what it was like to be around that community especially we're talking about at a school the amount of lives lost it was just one of those real watershed moments in this discussion about school shootings and gun violence but as you pointed out, in the immediate wake of the massacre, uh, Peterson became a target of criticism and scrutiny for what authorities allege was a failure to intervene in the shooting. After hearing shots, Peterson responded to the school's classroom building with his gun drawn. However, he maintains that he was unsure of where the gunfire was coming from and sought cover instead of entering the building. Sheriff Scott Israel soon became a vocal critic of Peterson's actions, alleging that the deputy directly violated his active shooter training, which instructed him to go towards gunfire, and Peterson was quickly placed on unpaid leave by the sheriff's department. How soon after this tragedy, you kind of alluded to it, did that sentiment take a turn towards why, why weren't these officers doing more? Very quickly. There was a famous press conference where Sheriff Israel, after he had appeared at Jake Tapper's town hall meeting on CNN and started to take some criticism for standing up for his officers, because all of his officers did the best they could with the limited, crappy resources that they had, including radios that were not working on campus. I mean, they literally were not working. They, They failed all of them. So he was taking a lot of criticism. And instead of calling my client 
on the cell phone. Yes, he was personal friends with my client because Sheriff Israel's kids, his triplets, went to that school. So they had a personal relationship. All he had to do if he wanted to know the truth is call my client and say, hey, what happened? You know, did you know where the shooter was? Tell me about things. He didn't. He has that famous press conference where they say, well, what should have happened? He should have gone in to kill the killer. And then, of course, Trump, who knows nothing about the case, he parrots it. That school resource officer doesn't care about kids. You got the highest leader in the land now criticizing on the case. What do you think parents who lost their kids are thinking? We all joined in on the criticism. I guess he knew where the shots were coming from, and he chose his own life instead of the life of children. So when he and I met, and he started telling me certain things in my office, I, I said, if half of what you're telling me can be supported, then I have to be your lawyer. You are totally innocent. There's no way. And you know what? Everything he told me was supported. I have right here some of the, the actual comments that were made in real time where he's on his radio and he's asking fellow officers if he knows where the shooter's located. The problem is that the sheriff never told everybody because of the pronounced echo and reverberation in that area because of the way the concrete buildings are constructed. Nobody could tell precisely where the shots were coming from. There was echoing. We, we, we put on dozens of witnesses who testified, students, teachers, other cops, that they thought the shots were coming from hundreds of yards away, not 10 feet away from where my client was standing. You couldn't tell. So the whole case was built upon this fallacy that he knew where the shots were coming from and he did nothing. That's, that's and, how- I don't I don't mean to cut you off, but not only knew where the shots were coming from, but knew how many people were involved, correct? I mean, it, at, at this yeah. point, they don't know if it's one person, five people, how many guns that person has, what, I mean, it was just a, a, a fog of war moment. You're, you're absolutely right. My client was there for four minutes and 15 seconds of the six minutes and 38 total seconds that Nicholas Cruz was committing his abhorrent atrocities. That's all we're talking about, four and a half minutes, four minutes and 15 seconds. And the first shots that my client heard were of coach Aaron Feist being shot literally a hundred yards away. So he doesn't know that the shots are coming from that building. In fact, that's why he gets on his police radio and he says, do not approach the 12 or 1300 buildings. Stay at least 500 feet away. Why is he keeping officers away? Because he wants children to be killed? It's because he couldn't tell these buildings are 73 yards long each. So you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of yards of a potential area of where shots are coming from, from one, two, three. Again, it's the plus one rule. If you think that there's two shooters, you have to assume there's three. No matter how many you think, you got to think there's more. He doesn't know where they are. So you don't stand out in the open. You're trained to take a tactical position of cover, which they called cowarding but a tactical position of governor with his gun drawn, monitoring the radio, ordering the assistant principal to go into the video room to find out, you know, where is the shooter located? Go watch the video surveillance. And while he's relaying that information, my client's telling the officers on the scene what they're seeing. So he was doing everything he could, including ordering a code red, you know, which he never got credit for, but we had witnesses testify that he ordered the code red to keep the kids in their classrooms. There's so much more. Yeah. I, I want and I want to get into all of it, but uh, something you alluded to, um, I, I want to back up for a moment because 
I feel, and, and it sounds like you still feel this way as well, that many people still have that original narrative stuck in their head of that this yeah. person was a coward, this person didn't respond, and you said that was because of Sheriff Israel, his comments, uh, the media, the way that they were covering it, the, the president, everybody was, was pushing this narrative. And just did you feel the same? I mean, were you a, a victim to that um, that narrative as well at the time? Did you expect that he would be charged? Okay, so yes, yes, and no. So yes, I also bought that narrative. That's the only narrative we had. Nobody was yeah. defending him. I wasn't his attorney at first. He had some other lawyers who were afraid to speak out, I suppose, right? So he took a year and a half hit before I joined as his sole attorney for three and a half years of preparation. And I tried my best, but it was behind the eight ball. I actually brought in numerous reporters to my office saying, listen, do you want to get it right? Sit with me for two hours. I'll go through everything. And they left here going, wow, I didn't know that. So yeah. I had two purposes there. One, maybe it would affect their writing, which most of the time it didn't. They didn't have the courage to change their narrative. But it also was wonderful for me because we were on a shoestring budget. I mean, he's a police officer, right? Living on a pension. I use these, um, me, I've never told anybody this, but I use these media folks as my mock jurors. I literally yeah. did a trial in front of them arguing my points, supporting it. And they were tough because they were like, well, let me see that. And I would show them the evidence. I would show them exactly where I'm getting it from. So yeah, it was wonderful. But here's the one thing where I said, no, no, I didn't buy it hook, line and sinker. I believed always there was something more to this case. I did not believe that this 32 year veteran officer who was award winning. I mean, he won deputy of the year a couple of times. He won a school resource officer of the year a couple of times. This guy was loved. They couldn't find one person to say anything negative. And everyone who we brought to testify said he was extraordinary. So how does he go from hero to coward in four minutes and 15 seconds? Right. I thought there was more to it. And in a Fox News appearance, apparently, and I don't remember this, I had said, I don't know. I think there may be more to this. I want to wait and get his side of the story. I said something like that. And that's part of the reason why he came to my office. He wow. said, you know what, Mark? I, I had a feeling that you get me. And I was like, I don't remember the appearance, but okay, let's talk. And sure <laughs> enough, there, there was a lot more to this story. Wow. Wow. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, well, let's let's get in. I, I wanted to kind of establish that idea of what you were what you were thinking before you got that phone call let's Coward. let's talk about a right Maybe. let's talk a little bit about uh the 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 case itself and what the prosecution's position was what your position was prosecutors desperately seeking accountability after the tragedy utilized the novel theory to charge peterson with felony child neglect under a statute governing Florida caregivers, prosecutors alleged that Peterson was responsible for the well-being of the school's children and failed in that duty. 
Patterson was eventually charged with seven counts of felony child neglect, along with three counts of culpable negligence. These charges were related to eight students, seven of whom were minors, and two school employees who were killed or injured on the third floor of the building. Peterson was not charged for any of the deaths that occurred on the first floor of the school prior to his response. Additionally, prosecutors sought a perjury charge against Peterson, claiming that the former resource officer lied in his testimony regarding his response to the scene. Okay, walk us through, because this it was kills one of me the just, things that... Just, just hearing the allegations. Yeah, like, yeah, I can imagine. I'm giving you, so, I'm giving you, uh, making you relive a, a painful moment. Right. Just but when I thought I, I was out, you pull me back <laughs> in. You know, it's killing me. But I could take one thing, one thing at a time. Yeah, so they're trying it, to plausibly analogize him to a parent... Yeah, tell, tell us about that, because that my first reaction, I think, was like yours. That, yeah, this doesn't sound... You know, it doesn't. It, the narrative was he he didn't do what he should have. That I think immediately kind of angers people. They want to see these children's lives saved. But right. then, as it began to develop, you're thinking to yourself, "I don't know if I'm hearing the whole thing." And then when I hear these charges, I didn't even have to know the underlying facts yeah. as much. But I'm like, that sounds like they're reaching. So walk us okay. walk us so through that. Let's talk about that. So again, they're trying to suggest that he's like a parent who doesn't, you know, who's neglectful and doesn't feed the child, or doesn't give the child the necessary medicine, or like a teacher who knows that a child is being abused by another teacher and owes a duty, but then just says nothing. You can't plausibly analogize a, a, a school resource officer who's there with alone. 3,200 students, right? So I would I would ask certain people who testified, now you're a school resource officer, do you ever call each kid in each day to make sure that they have a full belly and they've been nourished properly? Do you ever, I mean, it's silly. They're not caretakers under the, the meaning of the law or factually. And I also said this, you know, if an officer is there to investigate a crime, which my client does, right? As a school resource officer, he's investigating someone for a criminal activity. He brings that person in and he says, all right, I need to find out, you know, if you're responsible for bringing the drugs or the guns to school, right? So I'm performing a criminal investigation. Let me read you your Miranda rights. And he goes through like any officer would, reads Miranda rights. But then, oh wait, he's a caretaker, according to the state. So before you answer whether you wanna waive your rights, let me just say, it's not in your best interest to do so. I'm a caretaker. See, anything you say to that officer, you know, me, could be used against you. And you might not get into schools in the future. And gosh, you might even go to prison. I mean, what's his role there? He's a caregiver right. or he's a police officer? It was it was ludicrous. They wanted a felony because that would have ensured that he went to prison for life and or taken away his pension. Because if you're convicted of a felony, that would have done it. He would have had no money at all. This is going to get put us off track for a little bit, but this was something that you and I had talked about briefly beforehand that I found fascinating. Mm -hmm. Was there any plea negotiation uh, discussed? Was there was there an offer on the table, or how did things stand with that? Never did I ever approach the state, and or did they approach me about a plea offer? Ever. In fact, I kept. I'm telling you. Up until when the jury went out to deliberate, my delusional mind had me believing that the prosecutors would eventually just come over and say, "Okay, 
we're going to drop this. I mean, that's how delusional I was. That's how committed I was. That's how clear I saw his innocence. I genuinely believe that every time a prosecutor came over to me at breaks, be like, all right, listen, here's what we're going to do. Yeah, we're going to drop the perjury count. That was that should have been dropped to begin with. That perjury count was ridiculous. Uh, we could take some time to talk about it, but that was that was as ludicrous as all these charges. But that's how much I believed in his innocence and saw that the evidence corroborated or supported it, that I really did believe right up to the very end that they would actually drop these these bogus meritless charges that's that's incredible to me and it might be lost on some of our our listeners but for people who do this for a living the idea that you would ever get to trial with zero offer whatsoever is 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 unheard of i mean it, it even if it's an offer that you know your clients is going to reject there's yeah. always some sort of discussion for the sake of discussion taking place before you go to trial but for them to just say we're putting 12 in the box get ready and you have no alternative especially in a case where like you've already kind of mentioned this was very political there they were trying to make a statement you would think they could make that statement by offering your client something where he takes responsibility and then they move on and they can they can call it a victory and never to have done that is amazing he, he felt that the world was against him. How is he going to get a fair jury trial where, you know, you ask most people, they start off not with the presumption of innocence, but the presumption of him being a coward. How yeah. are we going to get a fair trial? And I assured him that I believed that we could. And I planned, I worked every night, I'm telling you. I, I've been practicing for 31 years in spite of my extraordinarily youthful appearance. This case <laughs> kept me up at night like no other case ever. And it's because I, I tr- not only believed in his innocence, I saw how we got here. I saw how political this whole thing was. I saw what they did to him. And I've never been that guy to claim political witch hunt. This is it. This is my only case. Good for you. What was his exposure? Just so people understand what were the stakes? What was he looking at if he was convicted of all this? Just under 100 years. Wow. So this is this is this man's life for all intents and purposes on on trial here over these types of charges they keep the the thing that's that irritated me and i know i don't have to pour uh, lemon juice on your open wounds on all of this but the, how they keep on top uh, categorizing it as a novel approach to the oh. prosecution this is this is them just making things up uh, with this kind of prosecutorial reach here but the idea that they're then doing that and exposing a man to nearly a hundred years in prison is just pretty phenomenal there, there were numerous other officers who were there with my client, who all took positions of cover, who did the exact same thing he did for the exact same reason, because they didn't know precisely where the shots were coming from. They had a general area. No one disputes the fact that if you know where a shooter is, you got to go in and kill the shooter. My client would have done that if he knew. But he didn't know. And he was asking, and you know, all the calls from inside that building where kids were witnessing other kids being killed, they're calling those calls in on their cell phone. They went to Carl Springs Police Department. Carl Springs Police Department is different than the Broward Sheriff's Office that my client worked for. Carl Springs never shared that information in real time with my client. So he's sitting there and it's like two different operations. Carl Springs, they knew where the shooter was located. They were getting the calls. They never shared that with my client, either by his radio or when they got to the scene. Hey, brother, we're going into the 1200 building. That's where the shooter is. Okay, 
No yeah. one shared that with him in the four minutes and 15 seconds that he could have he could have gone in to kill the killer. See, this is why I looked forward to having you on the show, because that's that's something I never knew. That That's information so that was much, really, never Josh, really highlighted. Josh, there's so much. I can't even, you know, the, the judge wouldn't even let me get into half of the stuff I wanted to get into <laughs> the politics. So there's so much stuff that, that maybe I got to write a book or something. I don't know. You should but, talk to talk know. to us about, though, I, because this is where people try to criticize your client the most is mm -hmm. they talk about the responsibilities of an officer and active yes. shooter training and everybody acts like they would have been a real commando if they had a right. gun on their hip that day. Right. And it, but but talk to us about that because okay. he is armed, right? I mean, there is some expectation that that's yes. what he's armed for is to use deadly force if he needs yes. to pr to protect students. But what is what what was his training? What was expected of him? And what did he do? Okay, I never criticized the notion that when an officer who's armed knows where a shooter or shooters are located, they have a duty to go in and protect the kids. Of course they do. The issue for me was always he didn't know where to run. If he ran 100 yards towards the 1300 building where the shooter could have been, that would have left vulnerable all the kids in the area near him. And then you're damned either way. I guess the Peterson rule now is even when you don't know where the shooter is, just pick up direction and start running. They'll criticize you for that too. But here's what bothered me the most. The policy at the time, now it's since been changed, but the policy at the time was an active shooter situation. You may engage the shooter. The word may was there. It gave him the discretion under certain circumstances that you can't go on a suicide mission. You don't have to. They since changed it to shall. At the time it was may. Now, I never really argued that too strong to a jury because I didn't want them to think erroneously that my client fell on the May. He knew where the shooter was, but he'll sit back and chill and he right. doesn't have to go in, which he didn't have to. And that's why they shouldn't have brought the charges. He didn't know. He didn't know. To this day, he still wasn't sure. He had a general idea. There was an indication of him saying 1,200, 1,300 building. So the argument is, well, just go in one, one of the places. Yeah, but we're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of yards, you know, because he didn't know if the shooter was on top, the side, behind, the parking lot. There were there were so many places this could have been. He couldn't narrow it down. Wow. Okay. Peterson faced trial in 2023 after five, uh, over five years after the fatal Parkland attack. Peterson's trial featured emotional testimony from survivors of the shooting, along with expert law enforcement witnesses giving competing accounts of the bloodshed that unfolded in the high school. Much of the prosecution's attention focused on what Peterson should have done, claiming that his alleged failure to act somehow led to further deaths. This is something... Um, I'm I'm curious about because there's first of all the L element of what he should have done that he should mm. have gone in or he should have you know thrown caution to the side and just headed towards where he could, heard gunfire from but then there's this added element of would that have done any good right I mean would what if he got himself killed what if he got another student killed by not really realizing that that student's not the shooter or all of these other things. Tell us how that played a role. Okay. I didn't focus on that too much because again, it would have seemed as if I'm telling jurors that he was concerned about his own life 
and or he was no match for what he clearly heard was, you know, a, a high powered assault weapon against his little pistol. And he has no protection on his body, um, no armor, no helmet, no nothing. I didn't focus on that too much because I didn't need to. It was clear to these jurors after dozens of witnesses, teachers, parents standing near where my client was, who, who, who never thought the shots were coming from inside. Every witness testified, no, the shots were definitely coming from outside. So where are you going to go into? You know, the only chance of killing the killer in the four minutes and 15 seconds that he's on the scene hinges upon him immediately knowing the shots are coming from inside a building and then knowing precisely where that building's located. There, that factually did not exist. That, that, that was not what the evidence showed. So I never then said, well, even if he did go in, you know, he could have been killed, whatever. I didn't want to make that argument because I thought erroneously that jurors would conclude that he was concerned about his own well-being. And he wasn't. I understand. And that was just something that that always bothered me because it seemed as though the prosecution's assumption was that had he gone in, he would have stopped the shooter. Well, th who knows? Who knows if that's true or not? And that's a no, big that's a big if. Let's play that out for one second. Do you know that students on the third floor, many of them, I think all of them testified, maybe there was one or two exceptions that they didn't hear the shots coming from the first and second floor within their own building. That the first time that they heard the shooter was when he's on their floor aiming in their direction. So the notion that my client would have gone into the first floor, because again, he, he wouldn't have known if the shooter, even if he knew it was in the building, he wouldn't have known if it was first floor, second floor, third floor, right? So this right. 73 yard long building, let's say he goes in, now he's gonna do what it took a half an hour for a team of SWAT people to do. You got to clear the building, right? So you right. go in and you start, you know, one classroom at a time and you're going by yourself with, you know, he's vulnerable because if he turns to the left, boom, he gets killed on the right. But okay, let's go with that. He presumably would have heard shots coming from the third floor and then he would have then run up to the third floor and then he would have confronted the shooter. No, they didn't hear shots on the third floor that were coming from the first floor. So that whole notion didn't make sense. Wow. You're a unique person to ask this question of. So I'm I'm curious. First of all, it, it's two parts I have a question about. First of all, you, you've talked about how you had extreme confidence in your client's um, innocence in all of this. No doubt. I'm curious going in. Yeah. Were you? Did you at all question your not his innocence, but your confidence um, by the the demeanor of either the judge or the prosecution? Was the did you feel, in other words, that this deck was stacked against you at all? Well, let me first disclose that I still practice here in Broward County. <laughs> okay. Well, then in don't, front of that don't let me judge. No, yeah. but I'll, I'm going to be completely honest. I thought this judge did the best that he could to give me a fair trial. I still take exception to certain things that he did. I think that the motion to dismiss should have been granted. I don't think that that child um, neglect um, pertains to law enforcement. I think it says it right there in the statute. It says, you know, excluding law enforcement officers in the official performance of their duties, right? Um, so I don't think this case should have ever gone forward. But that said, I still believe that maybe he believed that the law meant that the case should go forward. What I take exception to are the the things that he had discretion about. 
Like he asked me how long I need for closing. And I said, judge, not a minute longer than I need to deliver all the material, you know, to the jury. And he took that as, okay, he's going to be a smart aleck. I need a time limit on you. I'm like, okay, three hours, judge. Not that I was going to speak for three hours, but I don't want to be looking at my watch. And the, the, the state said uh, two hours. He goes, okay, I'll give you two hours. So that was random to begin with, right? But there were technical problems during my closing where the PowerPoint froze up a few times and there were some objections, a lot of objections during closing. So I couldn't get everything in in the two hours. I needed another 20 minutes to get to the law, right? The jury instructions that I had in my PowerPoint. And the judge wouldn't give me 20 minutes. I needed 40 minutes, but I knew he wouldn't give me that. So he said, how much time do you need? And in my head, I went 40 minutes, 30 minutes, 20 minutes. He'll give me 20 minutes, right? He didn't right. give me the 20 minutes. To this day, there's nothing he can say that would justify him not giving me the extra 20 minutes. The state could have had an extra 20 minutes in their rebuttal. And then you know what the first thing out of the prosecutor's mouth was on rebuttal? Right. Mr. Aguilar didn't even address the jury instruction. So obviously he agrees that the elements were present. I wanted to jump up and strangle someone at that point. Yeah. I was so upset. Thank God. I got the, the verdict that I did, the just verdict, because that one would have consumed me for the rest of my life. 20 minutes. My client's life wasn't worth an additional 20 minutes. Well, I, I know that you're uh, biting your tongue to some extent. I, I don't I, I don't have the same <laughs> concerns that you do. I will say that I, I do find that to be offensive because we're talking about a man who's looking at 100 years in prison. We're talking about essentially sending a person away for the rest of their life and first first of all, in many jurisdictions, putting any time limit on it is unheard of. I mean, there are cases that routinely, murder cases here in Los Angeles, closing arguments can go for more than a day or so if that's what they feel that they need, especially when you're talking about the defense that doesn't have the opportunity to then come up and address things again. So the defense, most people know this, but for our listeners' benefit, the prosecution gets to have an opening the defense has a, a an opening closing. The defense has their closing argument. And then the prosecution gets rebuttal where they get to answer some of what the defense has, where the defense doesn't get to answer any of it. They have to sit down and keep right. quiet after they give their closing argument. And that's why they're usually afforded a lot more leeway because they have to cover what they think might come up on rebuttal by the prosecution. So to be not only limited on a case of this magnitude and then not be afforded 20 more minutes, I'm offended on your behalf. So that that's okay. pretty In incredible. his defense, in the judge's defense, he did say, I never looked at the cases, that apparently there's some case law that says, you know, if the attorney is, you know, not using his time wisely or repeating himself, or I don't know what the specific language is, but I invite anybody, type my name into YouTube and put Scott Peterson. Scott's got one T. He didn't kill his unborn child and, and wife. That's the other Peterson. This is Scott Peterson with one T. You type that in and write closing argument. Watch my closing. You tell me if somehow I'm like, you know, what the case law probably refers to, that bumbling idiot defense lawyer who probably repeats himself a million times who needs to just sit down and the judge can somehow at some point restrict him, assuming that's what the case law says. I ain't that guy. I've been practicing 31 years. I teach litigation skills at the law school. I, I know what I'm doing. And if I was slightly repetitive, it's only because I have jurors who, you know, don't know how to spell unanimous, you know? So, you know, <laughs> I don't know what it is. I actually had a jury write, what dose, D-O-S-E, unamos mean? 
And this is by the poor person. Okay. So, yeah. So let me repeat a little bit, you know? Right. Well, we're going to take you up on your invitation. We have a clip of your closing argument that we're going to show to uh, viewers now. Their entire case hinges upon this erroneous belief that he knew that there were kids in that 1200 building being shot <coughs> by this monster. And that wasn't proven because it didn't happen. Mark, you're obviously passionate about this as we can see from that argument, um, advocated um, well on behalf of your client. Was there a moment though, I'm, I'm curious, and this happens oftentimes to attorneys where the, the trial might take some sort of emotional turn. Something may have not turned out how you had expected. Were there as ever a moment where you thought to yourself, I don't know if we have these jurors? That only happened one time. Um, well, it was a long period of time. It happened during jury um, uh, deliberation. I had asked them in jury selection, as I do with all my jurors. This is how I do trials. I ask jurors, I say, okay, any reasons why, you know, you wouldn't find in favor of the defense if the state doesn't prove their case? That's a standard question. But I go one step further. I say, I want you to assume that we're at the end of the state's case and you find that they did not prove any of the charges beyond it to the exclusion of every reasonable doubt. So the verdict is what? And I get them all to say, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Perfect. Do you believe you owe anybody, whether it be the judge, the victim's family members, the prosecution, any time specific time limit in that jury room in other words if they didn't prove their case could you come out and say not guilty in five minutes or less i call it the five minute not guilty i've gotten more five minute not guilties than anyone in this country because i asked for that i underestimated though you know these jurors are looking at the cameras as they come out each time the four person who i knew would be the four person he was caught up by the cameras so he would come out thank god for unanswered prayers too if it was up to me, he would have come out and said not guilty within five minutes. But then that would have, you know, garnered a lot of criticism that they just rushed to judgment and they didn't really consider the evidence. It took them four days, 19 hours, and we're living at this courthouse. And I'm telling you, that's when I started to go, oh my God, why are they taking so long? And that's why you see, and Google it, it's or look it up on YouTube, the verdict in Scott Peterson. That's why, if you haven't seen it, I am literally bawling like a little, I, I couldn't believe that I cried like I did. It just came out of me emotionally because, yeah, I was starting to question, oh my God, what's going to happen here? If anything other than not guilty happens, I, I can't accept that. I cannot get to acceptance on that. So if, to answer your question, yes, the only time that I ever felt that, oh my God, this could go against us is during jury selection, only because of the length of time. And I thought at worst, it would probably be a hung jury. Not, not, because I had jurors literally looking at me through the trial that I would make eye contact with. They were looking at me like, their face would say like, I know, can you believe this? Is that crazy? That testimony is ridiculous, you know? Like I had connection with some of those jurors where I, I would look at them throughout. You know, I did my crosses. Even the judge criticized me. Mr. Rogers, I see you looking at the jurors during cross. Yeah, judge, it's trial technique, okay? I'm communicating with them. And I had I had great relations with, with several of them where they would literally look at me going like, I know, isn't that crazy? So I, I felt I had them, but I started to wonder. It's hard to explain to someone if they haven't lived through it 
what it's like to sit there in court when a jury comes in and they have a verdict oh. and you don't quite know what it is. It really oh. is. There's no other moment that I can think of that has as much drama and suspense right. of real life consequences, by the way, you're right. you're built right. into it where you're, you're right. You are sitting next to a man that could be finding out he's about to spend the rest of his life in prison or he's going to go home that evening and you're sitting right next to him as you're waiting for that to happen. It's pretty. You're, you're, you're right. Listen, this was not about ego. You know, your ego is not your amigo. I learned a long time ago. This was, and so it wasn't about me. My career would go on no matter what. This was about a man who for 32 years was exemplary, award-winning, decorated officer. And one monster comes in and in four minutes and 15 seconds of my client's actions, he's now an alleged criminal. That never made sense to me. It's never been done before. The prosecution could never come up with a single example of an officer being charged for inaction ever. And it shouldn't be done under these circumstances. This was not the right case. Yeah. Can you tell us, can you share with us anything about Scott now? Is he, has he, how has this affected his life? Has he been able to move on? Well, first of all, early on, um, like years ago, he was forced to leave town. I mean, this was his home, South Florida. In fact, I, I learned later on that we both went to the same high school. He, he was there a few years before me and we both are huge pickleball fans. Um, <laughs> but he had to move, you know, to another state because he was that guy, he couldn't live here. So it's affected him that way. They're still suing him civilly. So um, that's reprehensible. They still want money out of him, even though he's, you know, all he has is his pension, which, you know, that's not gonna, he can't give that up. So I don't even get the point of it. It's just so some civil lawyer can pound his chest and say, oh, we, we got Scott Peterson with a lower burden of proof, which is, you know, in civil court, it's only 51%. So they're gonna try to get him there. Um, Scott wants me to to work on that case too, but I, I need a long break and I don't know that I'm the guy for that. Um, talk to us in kind of your closing thoughts here. What, what do you think this case does as far as other prosecutors and, and trying to hold law enforcement responsible for these types of situations, for this idea of what what they didn't do and 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 what they should have done. Do you think this is going to have larger ramifications beyond that courtroom in Florida? I'm really glad you brought that up because I didn't feel like I was just fighting for Scott Peterson. I really believed that I was fighting for every one of the dedicated, hardworking officers who show up at a scene and it's not black and white. The public now you know, we've we become like Simon Cowell. You know, we criticize. We think it should be like this, like this. It's not. Scenes are fluid. Cops are human. I have never met a cop who wants children to be killed. You know, they go out there doing the best that they can. And I'm hoping that it sends a message to prosecutors that, you know, only unless there's a clear cut case. And if it's clear cut, cops should be held accountable. And we know what those cases are. When cops do wrong and they commit criminal offenses, they absolutely should be prosecuted. This wasn't even close. It wasn't. Yeah. It was selective political prosecution. And, you know, you, you can't give Scott five years of his life back or all the money and and, and what he, we went through. But you know what? Um, I think it sends a message. Yeah, I think you're right. 
Mark, uh, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing uh, this experience with us. And thank you for coming on. Where can people find out more about you? Well, I have two websites, speak2mark.com, S-P-E-A-K, speak, T-O-M-A-R-K.com. I personally receive all emails that come through that website, so feel free to call or email. And then I wrote a book called Be Happy by Choice. In fact, I have that right here. Be Happy by Choice. I'm not plugging the book, <laughs> from, but but you know it can help you raise your happiness levels. Go to behappybychoice.com. Book's called Be Happy by Choice, Happiness Guaranteed or Your Misery Back. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you again. I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ or at joshuaritter.com. You can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD Sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar. Sidebar.